Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Julie Winch discusses her book, The Elite of Our People, Black Upper Class Life in Antebellum, Philadelphia. Julie Winch, author of The Elite of Our People, why'd you write this book? I guess because I was fascinated by the text that this is based on, which was originally written in 1841 and just promptly sank into oblivion. And I came across it purely by accident. And it was one of those things I tucked away and said, someday I'm going to come back and do an edition of this that makes it accessible to other than historians and specialists in the area. What is the text that it's based on? Uh, it was a text that was originally entitled Sketches of the Higher Classes of Colored Society in Philadelphia by a Southerner. And one or two people who'd noticed it assumed that the Southerner was a white Southerner and that, that this was poking fun at the pretensions of upper-class African-Americans. It was fairly obvious to me reading it, and in fact the author said it in the first paragraph or two, that this was an African-American Southerner and that what he was doing was much more serious than that. He's really trying to convince whites that class differentiation exists in the antebellum community. How did you find the book? I uh, came across it purely by accident in the Library Company of Philadelphia. I was looking for something else and was just curious about this. I was researching into the history of the African-American community in Philadelphia in the period before the Civil War, was going through likely titles, and this leapt out at me, and here was this neat little book that I had never come across and hadn't really seen references to. It just intrigued me. So you decided to turn it into a kind of a book about a book? Uh, yes, yes. One of the things I had no idea I would be able to do when I started this was to find out very much about the man who wrote it. Um, I couldn't, first of all, even discover what his name was. He just used the pseudonym A Southerner. When I delved a little further, it turned out that his name was Joseph Wilson. But for the historian who's trying to investigate somebody, you know, Joseph Wilson's a little bit better than John Smith, but not much. And I just started digging away, never thinking that I would really be able to do much more than maybe place him in Philadelphia around the time this was written. And then I started to stumble on various documents that really did illuminate his life. What kind of documents? Um, wills, uh, property settlements. It, it was fairly clear to me reading this that, that this was an educated man and that this was a fairly wealthy man. So I figured I would follow the money trail, that there had to be wills, there had to be property deeds. And those started me on the process of trying to uncover more about this man's life. What did um, you find out about him? I found out that he was born in Augusta, Georgia in 1817, that when he was born, his name actually was Joseph Keating, not Joseph Wilson. He was the son of a well-to-do Irish Protestant settler in Georgia by the name of John Wilson and a slave woman that Wilson had acquired, I don't know how, by the name of Betsy Keating. And Betsy and John apparently lived together for a number of years. There were five children born of this relationship, and Joseph was the elder of their two sons. How did he become free? His father actually had freed his mother before he was born, and since under the law in most southern states, children follow the condition of the mother. Since Betsy Keating was free, her children were free. And when John Wilson died, he left the woman he referred to as his housekeeper and her children a substantial sum of money. Now, under Georgia law at the time, and this was in the 1820s, they could not hold property in their own right. I mean, Betsy Keating had really here a double handicap. She's African-American and she's female. 
So what John Wilson had done, being fully aware of how difficult the legal situation was, was to appoint a white lawyer as guardian for Betsy Keating and the children. And the lawyer did actually prove a faithful guardian. He didn't try to defraud them. And he you know, supplied them with money from John Wilson's estate. And they lived quite comfortably in Augusta for about 11 years after Wilson's death. But then they had to move north to Philadelphia. They were faced with the problem that there was a ban on literacy, whether it involved slaves or free people of color in Georgia. So there was no way legally that these children could get an education. They were not allowed to learn to read? They were not allowed to learn to read. In fact, they all did, but in a very underhanded way. The, the children, um, Joseph Wilson had to be sent out of state in, and placed with another white family in Alabama, actually, to learn the basics. And clearly, he and his siblings were not going to have much of a life if they stayed in Augusta. And so the family just picks up and leaves and moves to Philadelphia. Why Philadelphia? I think because it's the first substantial northern city that they come to. I think probably the family was worried that as long as they stayed in the south, they could not feel very secure. You know, even if a state looked like it was making some acknowledgement of the rights of African Americans, who knew when that would change? And so it was a case of moving north and where were they going to go? It had to be a substantial city with a fairly active African-American community. So that meant it boiled down to Boston, New York. Pittsburgh was quite a small city at this time. Cincinnati was really fairly small. Chicago, well, possibly, but again, they'd have been one of a few hundred people. And Philadelphia just really beckoned to them. Not to mention the fact that the guardian who had been appointed for them had some business contacts in Philadelphia, and I think that helped ease the way for them. What year was it that they moved 1833. What was Philadelphia like in 1833? Um, it was, I'm afraid to say, not the city it had been. I mean, in, before the revolution, it was the second city in the British Empire. It was second only to London. Major port city, uh, very, very wealthy. It wasn't poor by any means in the 1830s, but it had definitely lost out as a port to New York. It was rapidly losing out to Baltimore. It was a city that was under strain in various respects. The economy was not exactly booming in the early 1830s. It, it wasn't a city that was on the verge of bankruptcy by any means, but it was, there were some serious problems. On top of that, it's the site of massive immigration from Europe. So you've got pressure on housing, on employment, on city services. But against that, it was still, if you were an African-American with talents and some money, it was an attractive place to live. It had a whole network of churches, lodges, schools. It had the largest free black population in America? Um, well, there's some doubt about that. It, it had one of the largest. Um, it's still debated as to whether New York had the largest in the north or whether Philadelphia. Depends whether you include Philadelphia County or whether you just look at the city proper. So when the family arrived in Philadelphia, where did they move? What neighborhood? Uh, they moved to Spring Garden, which was a somewhat unusual choice because the black population of Spring Garden was about 4% of the total of the district. So in one respect, they would have stood out, but they seemed to have lived fairly peacefully there. Nobody, at least Joseph Wilson, never reported that they were subject to any kind of racial antagonism. How old was he when they moved here? Uh, he was about 16. So old enough that he just completed his formal education here and then started looking around for a good trade. What trade did uh, he find? The first trade he found was printing. But he had a problem here, and that was that no white printer would take him on as an apprentice. And a friend of his in the African-American community who was well known to the Boston abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison Garrison, of course, is running a printing business. This, uh, this African-American man in Philadelphia by the name of Frederick Hinton, who would subsequently become Wilson's brother-in-law, wrote to Garrison and is really challenging him that if he does believe in racial equality, then he would surely want to help this young man get a good skilled trade. So Wilson goes off to Boston, trains as a printer, either with Garrison or one of Garrison's friends 
comes back, makes a fairly good living as a printer, but eventually gives it up to become a dentist. He had his own business as a printer? He does seem to have had his own business, and it was certainly reasonably successful. Is and that then, how he got the book, pub, book published? No, actually he got an independent firm of publishers to do it. He didn't do it himself. Uh, but he seems around the mid-1840s to have given up printing for dentistry. Dentistry. And I'm guessing that it had to do with the fact that you needed a fairly powerful wrist, whether you were a printer or a dentist. After all, since most dentistry at the time was not doing root canals, it was just pulling the tooth right out. Um, he, and this was a time when you did not have to be licensed necessarily as a dentist. You followed a regular dentist around and started assisting. I mean, certainly there was formal training that you could do. He's also drawing blood and doing various medical procedures. Was that a lucrative business? Uh, it does seem to have been because he, if his life course followed that of other African-Americans who were into uh, being medical practitioners and dentists, they generally had a clientele that included both black and white citizens. So calling in a licensed physician was very expensive. And you might well know someone in the neighborhood who could you know, pull the tooth that was bothering you or um, you know, lance that boil or drain some blood. Now, there are no photographs of him in this book. Are there any that exist? There might be, but I have not found any. It's one of the frustrating things with photographs that so often people don't identify on the back of the photograph who it's actually of. There could well be a picture or two of him out there, but I just haven't found it. So his book is called, let me find it here, Sketches of the Higher Classes of Colored Society in Philadelphia by a Southerner. Mm -hmm. What did you learn when you read it? That he is really developing a twofold argument. There is an argument that is addressed to the people he thinks of as the higher classes. Uh, he is not necessarily impressed by people's money. He figures that you don't really count as a member of the higher classes if you use your money to insulate yourself and your family from the rest of the African-American community. He believes that people with money, with education, owe it to their less fortunate brothers and sisters to offer a helping hand. So there's that message. But I think probably the broader message is to the white community to judge people not on the basis of race, but on the basis of merit and virtue. So it's really trying to appeal to a white readership. And at one point he says, would they please not judge the entire African-American community by disreputable members they happen to see in the street, but to look at the professional people, the aspiring business people. Now you reprint his entire book here. Yes. And you also have a section in the back, I couldn't help but notice that the, the notes mm -hmm. were almost half of the book. Yeah. And they're not like opposites and yeah. uh, ibids, but you have a lot of biographies mm -hmm. in here. Why did you decide to do it this way? Because I thought that otherwise these people would just be names put down in a book and, and there really wouldn't be a sense of what these men and women contributed. And many of their stories, I think, are as fascinating as Wilson's own. So when you decided to do this book, how did you set about doing it? Well, I guess the first thing I did was to transcribe Wilson's original and pick out personalities, um, larger issues that he talked about that really needed to be identified to make this accessible to a modern reader. And the language itself is clearly that of a very articulate individual, but it's not particularly obscure, I don't think. But it is identifying the people and the events that he talks about that I, I felt was a very important task. What are some of the people he talked about? Oh, I guess probably my favorite, I'm writing a book about the man right now, is James Fortin. Uh, Wilson doesn't actually mention him, but he was certainly a man he would have known. And he mentions various of his family members. Uh, Fortin was born in Philadelphia in 1766 died in 1842, fought in the Revolutionary War as a privateersman, was captured by the British, um, has all sorts of adventures, I mean, including being offered uh, an opportunity to go to England and be educated with this rather aristocratic captain's son and be set up in a good trade. Turns it down because he says that he's an American patriot 
He endures several months on a prison ship that almost killed him, comes back to Philadelphia, there's various things, but eventually is apprenticed to a white sailmaker and in course of time is promoted from apprentice to foreman to junior partner, takes over the sail loft when the older man retires and builds that into a thriving business, but at the same time meets Joseph Wilson's requirements for being a member of the higher classes in that instead of using his wealth to set his family apart and somehow buy their way out of the African-American community, he backs anti-slavery, education, uh, civil rights, a whole range of causes that obviously um, are very important to the lives of men and women in the African-American community. How rich was he? Um, at the height of his fortune, he was worth $100,000. And I've, I've looked at the property deeds, so that's not just a, a vague figure. And this uh, was what year? This is by the mid-1830s. He's got that level of wealth. So did he have white customers? Yes, yes. Most of the ship owners that he dealt with were white. There, there were one or two uh, who were African-American. But basically, he had to appeal to white customers. And the key here seems to have been the sheer quality of his work and you know, got lots of commissions and did very well and plowed his profits into real estate. He realized very early on that you had to diversify. So real estate, money lending, bank stocks, railroad stocks. Uh, his son-in-law was also a very wealthy man. And in his case, um, son-in-law was a man called Robert Purvis. The money was through inheritance from a very wealthy white father. So, how, how were race relations in Philadelphia at the time? Uh, getting more and more tense by the year. Um, the year Wilson comes to Philadelphia, there, there'd been some outbreaks, relatively minor, but of course very serious if you happen to be the victim. A lot of harassment on the street, uh, a lot of attacks in the press. In 1834, there would be a major race riot. This is blacks being attacked by whites? Yes. Not a race riot in his neighborhood, but I mean, he would have known people who were caught up in this. He would have known buildings in the African-American community that were vandalized. And there was a further outbreak in 1835, another one in 1837, another one in 1838, 42, 49. So it, it is a very tense time in the city. How did upper-class whites and upper-class blacks get along? Uh, not particularly well. Did they interact at all? Um, a few cases. I mean, there were some upper-class whites who were committed to anti-slavery, particularly if they happened to be radical members of the Quaker movement. But in terms of what most whites of the literate classes thought about African-Americans of the higher classes, it was that they had gotten above themselves. They should be, you know, why had, did they not want to be servants and domestics? Uh, why did they aspire to try to be like white upper-class people? A great deal of poking of fun, really um, very, very crude racist humor directed at the pretensions of men and women in the higher classes. You know, when I want to ask you about this. This is a cartoon. You have a number of these in, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. in the book that are... are parodying uh, the black elite. Yeah. Where'd you find these? I found them at the Library Company of Philadelphia. And what are they? Uh, there's a series of these that were done by a cartoonist by the name of Edward Clay. And these were reprinted many times. They were very popular in this country and they also were very popular in London where a number of them were reprinted. So for all England had a fairly active anti-slavery movement at the time, it didn't mean that there was this sense of distaste and unease with racist caricatures. Now how did the black elite treat the black lower class? Well, it varied. Uh, there were occasions in which the elite tried to preach, um, you know, thrift and morality and abandoning anything that to them smacked of street culture. And sometimes they would get a hearing, but sometimes there would be a response that was, you know, just, just leave us alone and do your own thing. I mean, there, there is a certain distancing, even though um, a lot of the time there is a reaching out on the part of 
the African-American elite to the less fortunate. There's a certain patronizing tone at times. Did they tend to have servants? Um, the likes of the Fortins and uh, somebody else that uh, Joseph Wilson wrote about, Joseph Cassie, uh, had servants. Always a maid and a cook. And sometimes one or two other servants as well. Now you mentioned uh, sail making and dentistry. Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph Cassie, you talked about, was He's a, a barber, barber, a wig maker, and he was discreetly referred to as a note shaver, which meant he was making loans at interest, mostly to white customers. So again, that plowing of his profits into money lending and also real estate. But not all the people that Joseph Wilson mentions as being members of the higher classes are wealthy. I mean, some of them are just getting by. There are people who are tailors. Uh, there are people who are grocers. Uh, they've managed to get a little bit of capital, get a store open. Um, one or two other dentists and bleeders. There are women who are dressmakers. And there are people who have not long managed to get out of semi-skilled laboring and move up into something else. He doesn't seem to be picking out only the moneyed elite and saying these are the only people who count in his reckoning. And who, who again, what was his criteria again for the uh, elite? If you were concerned about the welfare of the community, the wider African-American community, you had to have some education. And if you had a modicum of wealth, because he did realize that if you had absolutely nothing, or you know, little better than nothing, then your world, your energy was just consumed with trying to put food on the table, pay the rent, and cover the most basic uh, requirements that you, know, you and your family had. Where would the Philadelphia black elite be educated? Um, very often in schools that had been established by organizations like the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, there were schools that the um, African-American community had established itself. There are various private schools, but of course not in the public schools. It's the public schools actually until into the 1820s did not even appropriate money for the education of black children. When they did, it was very definitely in separate schools. It tended to be the pattern that these were the less appealing schools when a bunch of white students moved out and got a better facility somewhere, then the school building, by then quite badly run down, was made available to black children. High turnover of teachers and you know, all sorts of problems in trying to get an education for your child. How long might they go to school? Really depended. I mean, there's obviously pressure on a lot of families to pull their children out of school and get them to work. And this is something that, uh, for instance, the women in the higher classes recognize that there were a lot of parents who didn't even have adequate clothing and footwear for their children. So what these women are trying to do is to collect clothing, uh, to buy shoes, to beg shoes, so that at least families can't say, well, I would send my child to school, but I just don't have the clothing and she's got no shoes. But of course, it still didn't deal with the issue that maybe you needed to send that child out to work. How many people did actually compose the black elite? I would hazard a guess that of the total African-American community, probably talking between 5 and 8 percent. It's definitely under 10 percent. How much is that in numbers of people? Well, in 1830, when the Wilsons come to Philadelphia, the total African-American population is 14,000. So we are talking about a tiny fraction of that total. You mentioned Robert Purvis, mm -hmm. and I kind of interrupted you and changed the subject there. Tell me more about Robert uh, Purvis. Well, Purvis is James Fortin's son-in-law, and he has a remarkable background. He's born in Charleston, South Carolina. His father was a man by the name of William Purvis, who came from the borderlands of England and Scotland, you know, where the border was never quite distinct. Uh, he and a bunch of his brothers came over to Charleston just around the end of the Revolutionary War. Most of the brothers got rich and went back to Britain, some to Scotland, some to England. Um, William Purvis stayed on. He acquired a housekeeper by the name of Harriet Judah, who was supposedly of African and German Jewish descent. With Harriet Judah, he had three sons. Um, 
I think, let me see, the oldest was William, then there was Robert, and then there was Joseph. And very much like the Wilsons, the Purvises find themselves in this halfway position in Southern society. William Purvis eventually sends Harriet and the children to the north. He sends them to Philadelphia, and apparently was intending to eventually move with them to Britain, buy an estate there, and avoid the legal and social ramifications of the fact that these children were at least of partial African ancestry. Well, he died before he could do it. Uh, he left his entire estate. He made provision for his housekeeper, for Harriet, and she was a very wealthy woman as a result of his bequest. Everything else he left to his three sons. When the oldest of those three sons died, his share went back to his brothers. Fortin got both those young men for his daughters. So he very, very skillfully annexed that whole fortune. This was a very wealthy family. Now you describe, you said, had Robert Purvis chosen to do so, he could have lived his life as a white man. Mm -hmm. He was light-skinned enough to pass. Yes. He told abolitionist Samuel May he had traveled much in stagecoaches and stopped days and weeks at Saratoga and other fashionable summer resorts and mingled without questions among the bows and bells. Yes. Was that a temptation? Did, to pass? I suspect it must have been, you know, even if it was a fleeting one. But he would ridicule uh, sort of racial categorization of people again and again. When he was fairly newly married, he had to go to England to settle some of his father's business affairs because there was property on both sides of the Atlantic. And when he first tried to get passage to England, there was a southern uh, member of Congress who refused to travel on the same vessel as a man of color who was not a crew member. If Purvis had been a common sailor, no problem. But the fact he was going to travel as a passenger really upset this man. So the captain of the vessel, the owners of the vessel, apparently asked Purvis if he would go on a, another ship. So he went to England. He was, uh, had a lot of introductions to English abolitionists. He went to the House of Commons one day and was introduced to the Irish patriot Daniel O'Connell. And Daniel O'Connell refused to shake his hand. So here you, you have this peculiar situation where O'Connell just turns his back and O'Connell says, I will shake the hand of no white American unless I know how he stands on the issue of slavery. So Purvis's friend has to go up and pull him by the cuff and say, that guy's not white. And then O'Connell turns around and says, you know, that he is pleased to shake Purvis's hand. Purvis actually remained a real friend of Irish nationalism as a result of that, because he always remembered that whatever the attitude of certain Irish immigrants in Philadelphia, Daniel O'Connell found slavery very distasteful indeed. It turned out that on the vessel coming back, Purvis was booked to travel with the same white man who would not travel to England with him in the first place. The man just assumed he was white and in fact um, made quite a play for Purvis's friendship, thinking that this was a wealthy white southerner. And on the last evening, Purvis disclosed his full identity to the humiliation and embarrassment of this man. What did he do for a living, uh, He really don't, actually didn't need to do anything for a living. Oh, he was he that rich. managed his uh, father's estate. He owned real estate. He owned bank stock. But it's, it's only fair to point out that where he was a very shrewd man of business, his brother was a total disaster. And his two young men start off with a very similar education and with essentially the same amount of money. And one dies a very, very wealthy man having been very generous to a whole host of causes, and the other one dies a bankrupt. It's all to do with, um, you know, just how they manage their money. Another character in the book is John Burr, who yes. you say is a son or reputed to be it's a son? It's reputed that he's a son of, of Aaron, Aaron Burr. Burr, yes. What can you tell me about him? I uh, can't tell you very much about him. This was a story that went round in the African-American community. Uh, John Peeper never had a great deal of money. Uh, maybe he was just in the wrong trade. Uh, maybe he was just too generous. But he was someone who was involved in virtually every community undertaking. 
this is a very active man in anti-slavery, in education, in civil rights, and his family after him as well. I mean, his, Wilson also mentions his son, uh, his wife Hetty Burr was a stalwart of the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. This is a very active family. This is the 1830s, 1840s? 1830s and 40s, yeah. What form did the anti-slavery movement take at the time? Well, you had the remnants of the old anti-slavery movement that had existed among whites since the revolution. You had the new, more militant wing that was headed by William Lloyd Garrison. But of course, for the African-American community, you're talking about men and women with a long, long history of opposing slavery. After all, some had been slaves themselves. Some had relatives who were held in slavery. They certainly knew that with slaves fetching any kind of price in the South, uh, kidnappers preyed on free people of color in Philadelphia. Very easy to kidnap one of the poorer street children and just whisk them away into Delaware and then from Delaware to point south and sell them. And this happened on numerous occasions. Were there many runaway slaves in Philadelphia at yes, the time? Yes. Some whites argued that there were you know, thousands. In fact, they got very exercised. There was a petition uh, in the 18-teens arguing that although the census for 1810 showed about 10,000 free people of color, there were in fact another 4,000 people in the city hiding out from slave catchers and from officers of the law. Obviously not very pleased to have census takers come around the house. Now, 4,000 was probably an exaggeration, but there were certainly many hundreds of men and women who were looking over their shoulder, wondering if they would ever be taken up and you know, rushed back to the South. What types of activities did the anti-slave societies do? Um, it varied. Uh, there was an emphasis on, certainly amongst the women's anti-slavery societies, on petitioning Congress for, for instance, a prohibition on slavery in the District of Columbia. Um, a prohibition on expanding slavery into the Western territories. I mean, none of these women, black or white, had the right to vote. But they are still taking a political stand and saying that as people who live in the United States, they have a right to petition Congress. And they would do this regular petition drive every year, you know, either about the District of Columbia or Texas, banning the spread of slavery into Texas. They are also establishing schools. They are helping to fund existing schools in the African-American community. They are writing to anti-slavery women in other communities to try to get a, a network of activists formed. Uh, among the men's anti-slavery societies, I mean, there are tensions between black and white. Uh, you know, one of Fortin's daughters pointed out that uh, a white anti-slavery man had told her that the blacker the night, the better an abolitionist he was. He wasn't really sure. It was one thing to help those poor, unfortunate slaves in the South. It was another to reach out to an African-American with education and talents in Philadelphia and claim them as, as one's equal. There was a certain unease there. Now, for a period of time in this book, the black males were allowed to vote in Philadelphia. Well, the law was vague and this was what people had relied on. The 1790 Constitution said that to vote you had to be a freeman. Now did that mean a free man, a man who was not a slave and owned a certain amount of property? Or as some white opponents of black voting rights argued, did that mean you had to be a freeman? And you couldn't be a freeman, one word, if you were black. So in some parts of Pennsylvania, African-American men voted. In Philadelphia, they couldn't by local, you know, popular prejudice. They just were not able to approach at the hustings at election time. Can I ask you a little bit about yeah. yourself? Yeah. I, I detect a slight accent. I've been here for 23 years, but I still have the accent. Here from where? Uh, from Britain. I grew up just outside London. What was your life like there? Um, well, I wouldn't go back to live there. It was, I came over originally uh, to go to graduate school here, actually intending to go back once I had my doctorate. Graduate school where? I went to Bryn Mawr. I was one of the last people who got through the PhD program in history at Bryn Mawr. 
didn't actually, when I came over here, have a particularly good idea of where Philadelphia was, but I had been offered a scholarship and that was good enough for me. I packed two bags, got on a 747, and came over. How did you find Bryn Mawr from England? Oh, that was, um, that was a sort of odd set of circumstances. At the time when I was an undergraduate in Britain in the early 70s, if you had a university place, the money automatically followed. You didn't really have to worry how you were going to fund this. It was an education in itself to me to find out that you could get admitted to an American school, but without the money. And I looked around for various ways of funding this. I knew that it was going to be an expensive proposition. And went through the English-speaking union in London. They listed a whole bunch of universities and colleges here for which they interviewed. So that at least um, the school that would admit you over here knew that someone they trusted, a panel of, uh, of experts, so to speak, had actually seen you and that you weren't completely witless. And so I just checked off a whole list of places, one of which was Bremer. But you knew you wanted to go to graduate school in America? Uh, yes, I did. I knew that I wanted to work in the era of American history. And probably 19th century and probably African American history. But it was purely by chance that I ended up so close to Philadelphia. I had read a little bit about the African-American presence in Philadelphia in the 19th century before I came over here. But as I say, as luck would have it, I ended up nine or 10 miles from Philadelphia and just started digging away. Was that your first trip to America when you finally came It was came actually here my first trip to America. What was your reaction? Oh my goodness, um, that nothing had prepared me for that that it might be a common language, but I still didn't understand it. What year was it? Uh, I came over in 1977. I remember the first time somebody asked me how I wanted eggs cooked. Well, in England, it's, it's only fried eggs. I said, well, well, what are the choices? And I get all these choices reeled off to me. And it was quite disconcerting. I think I came over on a Tuesday and had to start classes on a Thursday. There's really very little time for adjustment. Didn't know if I would like it at first, but you know, as You're the years here. went by, I, yes. I became an American citizen last October. I decided after 22 years in the United States it was time to do it. Was graduate school what you expected it to be? Um, yes, I think it was. Um, graduate school, at least when I was investigating it in England in the early 70s, was a rather lonely experience because what one did was just spend three years writing a dissertation. Uh, no coursework. And if you happened to get along with your advisor, it was fine. If you didn't, it was bad news. Uh, also, very little interaction with other graduate students. So my friends who had stayed on to do graduate work in England generally didn't find it a very appealing experience. So I did like the idea here that you did coursework and you narrowed down a topic because I mean you otherwise have a lot of false starts with thinking that you had a wonderful topic and it just you know six months into it it would just completely collapse what I liked about graduate school here was the chance to explore various topics before narrowing in on one what was the one you narrowed in um, actually it was a study of two generations of leaders in Philadelphia's African-American community from 1787 to 1848. I see on the back here that was published by Temple University Press yes, in 1988 in, yes. under the title Philadelphia's Black Elite Activism, Accommodation and the Struggle for Autonomy. Yeah. You also wrote a book called The Colored Aristocracy of mm -hmm. St. Louis and this book and a biography of James Fortin yeah, coming up. Fortin. I want to talk about James Fortin yeah. a little bit more. What is your interest in African American history? I guess I was just fascinated when I was doing undergraduate work in American history in England with the notion that there was such a vibrant community of, of free people. And I remember asking various professors, well, you're telling me in the period before the Civil War that people were managing to get out of enslavement, whether it be by buying themselves, whether it be by picking up and running away. Well, what lives did these men and women make for themselves? and never got much direction, sort of, oh, well, they lived in cities. 
and I want to know well, what cities and, and where and what did they do and how did they live and how did they interact with their white neighbors. So it was with that in mind that I started a graduate project that, that eventually became the first book. Well, let me ask you all those questions. Yeah. How, how did they live, first of all? Um, in many, many different ways. I mean, as, as Wilson points out, there were people who lived in absolutely abject squalor, and there were people who lived in comfortable surroundings. The poverty was pervasive within the northern African-American community. Getting a chance of a decent, skilled job and being able to retain that job and actually use that money to buy yourself and your family certain material advantages was extremely difficult. And it became more difficult as time went on. This was not a situation where things started out appallingly badly and gradually there was an easing of white prejudices. In fact, many, many whites got more aggressive, more hostile as African-Americans did better in material terms. Um, the, uh, what role did the churches have in the African-American uh, community? A very profound effect because they were so clearly, as, as they are today, more than places that people went to on a Sunday. I mean, these are really the centers of the community. And white rioters knew this. For instance, in Philadelphia, they talk again and again in episodes of mob violence about destroying the churches this belief that somehow if they can destroy the black churches, they can destroy the black community. I mean, these were places where schools were organized, where anti-slavery societies often met, where sort of mutual benefit societies got going. This was really not the place that you just resorted to on a Sunday. Were there a lot of little churches or a couple of big ones? Um, well, by the time uh, Joseph Wilson is writing in the 1840s, Philadelphia had 16 African-American churches. The biggest was undoubtedly uh, Mother Bethel. Where is that? Uh, well, it's still down on its original site. Um, what is it today? It's um, down on 6th Street, 6th and Lombard, or 6th just off Lombard. St. Thomas's, which was Joseph Wilson's church, was actually the, the oldest of the African-American churches. And St. Thomas's has moved a number of times. It was down on 5th and Adelphi, and it's now out on um, it's Lancaster Avenue. That What's significant about the Mother Bethel Church? Well, that it is the center of the first African-American denomination in the United States. It is the center of the African Methodist Episcopal denomination. And its first bishop, um, Richard Allen, was a truly charismatic individual. Wilson would not have known him. He died several years before Wilson came to the city, but he would have encountered many, many people who knew Alan, had vivid memories of this man. Now, where in the city might you have found the African-American elite? Down on South Street, down the South Street corridor. If you went to the area that was just on that southern boundary of the city, Lombard Street, Pine Street, South Street, and then down into Southwark and Moyamensing. And it's, it's the fact that that community straddled what was then the line between Philadelphia, the city proper, and the county that in some senses made it very vulnerable. Because when there were riots, what the rioters would do is they would rely on the fact that the city law enforcement very often chased them to the boundaries of the city and say, well, that's it, our job is done, they're out of the city, and then they could you know, create mayhem the other side of that line. So at the time there was a difference between Philadelphia City and Philadelphia yes. County? It's not incorporated. The areas like Southwark do not become part of Philadelphia until 1854 with this Consolidation Act. Joseph Wilson leaves the city just around that time and heads off to Cleveland and seems to sense that there are more opportunities in Cleveland. Uh, both for himself as a um, dentist and a medical professional and for his children because the public schools in Cleveland were desegregated. He's got five children, well, he got three at the time that he left Philadelphia, looking to their opportunities as his mother had looked to the opportunities that he and his siblings would have you know, when they originally left Augusta for Philadelphia. So he and his wife and the, the, the three oldest children 
moved to Cleveland. Did he ever write any more books? Not that I've ever been able to trace. He carried on being a dentist, was rather successful, uh, had in Cleveland quite a number of white patients as well as African-American patients. The family after the Civil War achieves some fame because one of his daughters marries one of the first African-American men elected to the United States Senate. And this is very definitely a society wedding. And it's reported in the white press as well as the African-American press. So this was, you know, the family was not a family that uh, pursued any kind of notoriety. They're a rather private group of people. So the press coverage apparently was not particularly welcome to the Wilson family. What was black elite society like in Philadelphia? What sort of things did they do, activities? Well, he talks about uh, musical evenings. He talks about how decorous many of the entertainments are, absolute prohibition on alcohol. Now, he does admit that he's not saying everybody in the higher classes is teetotal but that at least it's considered very bad form and, and you know, just not the thing to do to bring out alcohol at these gatherings. Uh, he talks about refined conversation about all the political topics of the day. In fact, he challenges whites who don't believe that there are higher classes of colored society to seek some introductions and spend evenings with various families and in, in sort of community gatherings and really be edified and educated by the level of conversation. He, he also writes about literary societies. Mm -hmm. It says there's the Philadelphia Library Company of Colored Persons, mm -hmm. the Rush Library Company and Debating Society, Demosthenes, Demosthenian. Demosthenian Institute, Yes. Minerva Literary Association, Edgeworth Literary Association, yes. Gilbert Lyceum. What would these organizations do? Well, fairly typically, um, I've done some work on the women's literary societies. This was a way that if you were literate, you could write and you could get feedback from other members of the society. If you were struggling to become more literate and more educated, you could go along and learn from the other members. And this is, particularly for women, this is a time when your name should not appear in the public print. So you would write a poem with some name that you would sign it with, like, well, a lady, it was said that a lady's name only appeared in print twice, when she married and when she died. And that if it, if it appeared in the public print any other time, it was incumbent upon her husband to seek out the newspaper printer and attack him with a horsewhip. Because there was only a certain kind of woman whose name appeared in print other mm. than on those two occasions. So it's that difference between a woman and a lady. So these women are using pen names like Ada and some of the other, Maga Whisker, um, Sofa Nisba. Did you find their writings yes. in your research? Yes. Where could people find them? Uh, they these are actually in some of the anti-slavery newspapers. The prime source for this is William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator because he insisted on having what he liked to term a ladies department where ladies could send their literary productions and he let it be known that he was very interested in publishing the works of african-american women he is someone who within the white anti-slavery movement is trying to reach out to to whites who doubt that african-americans have any kind of intellectual capacity and say but look at the fine literature that people can produce so he lets the women in the anti-slavery and the uh, literary societies know, and he's very often in Philadelphia, that if they care to send him some of their poems, uh, he will try to find a place for them in the Liberator. How could a viewer who was interested in this find copies of well, the Liberator? Well, actually, the Liberator has been microfilmed, and I'm sure that there are microfilms at a number of libraries here in the Philadelphia area, uh, and probably in other libraries across the state. I know, for instance, in Philadelphia, there's a microfilm at the University of Pennsylvania, I believe at the Free Library, and at numerous other locations. So I was able to find quite a number of these poems. One of the, one of the things Joseph Wilson writes in here is, uh, the insincerity in the conduct of the young ladies toward each other is remarkable. Ah, uh, yes. 
What about the insincerity of the young ladies towards There's each other? There's a certain sexism that creeps in here because he does talk about how men can be gossips as well, but for the dignity of the male sex, he will not talk about that. So there, there is just that sense that, that women, particularly young women, are prone to gossip. Men do it, but yeah, let's not publicize that. Uh, he does allude to the fact that there's a certain level of backbiting. He says that would be true in any community. Uh, he's particularly upset, and I, I've not been able to discover what particular episode he's alluding to, but he alludes to uh, a young woman who is being courted by a gentleman, and various members of her little social group apparently slander her and try to break up this budding relationship. You know, presumably because they're jealous and they would like this wealthy young man for themselves. Can you explain how that would work? This is 1830s, 1840s yeah. Philadelphia among the black elite. How would courting work? Well, you're talking about a fairly uh, small group of people. So a little bit of gossip and insinuation that uh, someone's moral reputation is not all it could be. Would somebody uh, knock on the door and have a, a card with their name on it and have just, somebody take it inside? Uh, oh, you mean the whole um, institutional of, of calling on right. someone? Yeah. Um, yes, that fairly typically what happened, and, and this is also the pattern uh, within the white community, is that you took your card when you went to visit. You presented it to the servant who would inquire as to whether the person you had wished to call to see was at home. Were they receiving? And so he talks about how, in some respects, it can be a rather elitist uh, social circle where people you know, do present their cards and there is this formal ritual of calling. So there's one or two who are real snobs and will only call on someone after that person has called on them. You know, won't just go around and introduce themselves in a friendly manner. But, you know, actually, in fairness, that was also happening within the white community. There's, there's a famous cartoon uh, of a male servant saying to a caller, Madam is not at home, and you see the woman hiding because she doesn't want to receive this guest. And then this whole protocol of where you were received, that intimate friends of the family were received in the drawing room, someone of of slightly inferior social status would be received in the front hall, uh, someone else might not be received at all. And of course that is one of the things that Edward Clay in one of his cartoons pokes a lot of fun at, the, the, the pretensions of African Americans that they would presume to have visiting cards, as did members of the white elite. How would a wedding be or a big social function? Did uh, they exist? Uh, yes. Uh, some of the weddings took place in church. Others took place in private home. Uh, there's an interesting episode where James Fortin's daughter gets married to Robert Purvis, his daughter Harriet, uh, and he decides that rather than this being a church wedding, they will have the minister come to the house. This can be, then be more private, more decorous, and you're not going to have the potential for hostile whites poking fun at this, this couple on this very solemn day. And so he does arrange that this, you know, he, it's clear from little material I've been able to find on the family that his daughter had a very elegant white silken satin wedding gown. And there was a hitch at the last moment because the minister's wife died uh, one or two days before the wedding. So obviously the minister is in mourning it's not appropriate, even if the poor man had been in any emotional state to do this, for him to officiate at a wedding. But because of Fortin's standing within the community of Philadelphia, the white Episcopal bishop of the diocese steps in at the last minute and comes to his home and conducts this wedding. It's a very elegant affair. Were you able to find any evidence of descendants of these families who are in Philadelphia today? Um, very, very few. I mean, yes, families are certainly around, and I've tried to respect people's privacy. Um, of the Wilsons, uh, the families are, the family uh, really scatters. Um, Joseph Wilson, as I indicated, goes to Cleveland. Uh, eventually, two of his daughters, 
become, they do not marry, they become school principals in Indianapolis. And he spends his last years in Indianapolis. But of his other children, one of his daughters marries and goes to Louisiana. And I tried to trace her in the records and have not been able to. Uh, his daughter, Josephine, who marries Blanche K. Bruce, who's the African-American man who's elected to the United States Senate, they have a son, and that son has descendants. Who be and the, the son becomes very active in civil rights movements in the 20th century. So there's, there's a real legacy there. And uh, Joseph Wilson's one and only son, who he blessed with the name of Leonidas, who was known to his friends as Leon, became a lawyer in Cleveland, married into a white family, had children, and two daughters actually, and I know that uh, at least one of the daughters had descendants. But I, no, I have not traced the family up to the modern day. Any descendants of the Purvises or Fortins? Um, well, the Fortin family, there are four sons. Two of them never marry and apparently do not have children. Uh, so for people with the last name Fortin, no. Uh, on the other hand, there are two other sons. One of them um, marries twice. He has a daughter by his first wife, two sons by his second wife. The daughter marries, has one child that dies. The younger of his two sons dies in his teens. And then there's another son who is a somewhat mysterious figure that I could go into in great detail, but <laughs> that would take us the best part of an hour. And then there's another son who's, in some respects, the family ne'er-do-well. And there are progeny of, uh, of him scattered about the area. As far as the Purvises, and you know, two of Fortin's daughters marry these two Purvis brothers, there are descendants there. And they are scattered all over the place from California to New England. Now, you mentioned earlier that your interest in James Fortin and you are just completing a book mm -hmm. about James Fortin. Yeah. What can you tell us about him other than, uh, well, tell me an interesting oh. James Fortin story. Well, he is, he is into everything. There is scarcely anything that takes place in Philadelphia that doesn't in some way, shape, or form involve him. Uh, I guess probably um, one episode I've just been writing about involves his actions during the War of 1812. I mean, this is a time of tensions escalating between black and white in the city. At the beginning of the war, this is a guy who served in the revolution, very, very patriotic, and truly believes that the revolution was a libertarian movement and that black and white had sided together against a common enemy. Somewhat romanticizing this conflict, but when he took part in that conflict, he was a 14, 15-year-old youth. So here he is during the War of 1812. The war starts and he follows its course, because even though some of his good friends are British, he is an American. And when he gets the news uh, about old Ironsides defeating the British, well, Philadelphia goes berserk. I mean, this is a great victory. And there is a subscription to buy uh, commemorative silver items for the captain of the Constitution and for his first officer. Fortin willingly contributes. He's the only uh, African-American who contributes. He's one of the few people with the money to contribute. He's very gung-ho. And then, as the war drags on, Philadelphia's not immediately threatened in this war. There's a real racist tone that creeps in in the newspaper. Someone says, why don't we just use black people and go out and fight the British? Because nobody wants them anyway, and they could be cannon fodder. And we could just get rid of a whole load of them. So you can imagine the response of this very patriotic African-American man. Then there's a real legal assault on the rights of uh, black Pennsylvanians. He addresses that in a pamphlet and protests and says, well, what did we ever do to deserve this kind of treatment? Well, guess what? 1814, the British have burnt Washington. It looks like they're on their way up to Philadelphia and the city is in a state of panic. So everybody in the male population who's able-bodied is appealed to, to build these big fortifications along the banks of the Schuylkill. 
somebody remembers the African-American population. Well, who better to mobilize that population than James Fortin? And instead of saying, you know, excuse me, you, you said we were cannon fodder and you said you didn't want us, so you're on your own. He just gets the African-American community together and argues that, yeah, things have been bad in the past, but if the whole community, black and white, collaborates on the common defense, then maybe things will get better after the war. It, I'm afraid it goes without saying they didn't get better after the war. Well, we didn't mention when we were talking about you what you're doing now. I'm a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Teaching what? Um, pretty much anything in the area of American history. I teach uh, U.S. history survey, which is largely to freshmen, and it's usually quite a lot of fun because they come in and they, they invariably hate history. So they've had a rotten time at high school. Not, not all of them, but a lot of them will say, well, I don't really want to take this course. I've got to take a history course to complete my major. Um, and then I teach graduate courses. I also teach some upper-level undergraduate courses. And your book about James Fortin is coming out when? It's, we're hoping for a publication date of February 2002. Oxford University Oxford Press. Oxford University Press. And this is the book we've been talking about, which is out now, Penn State University Press, The Elite of Our People. Julie Winch, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.